0: Hi everybody, the Organization of Latin American Affairs would like to thank you for tuning into this podcast. Uh, If you don't know who the Organization of Latin American Affairs is, OLA is a cultural organization at Boston College and its purpose is to articulate and promote the needs and goals of the Latinx community at Boston College and to foster and encourage an attitude of academics, religious beliefs, and social awareness. It intends to further the interest of the Latinx community in greater Boston and in the United States, and it incorporates the use of bilingual and bicultural knowledge in providing exposure of the college experience to Latinx communities through community service, political action, social justice, and social awareness. Today, as part of our COVID-19 and vaccine campaign awareness, we will be interviewing Dr. Philip Jay Landrigan, who is a professor of biology and public health at Boston College. Um, He is a pediatrician, a public health physician, and an epidemiologist. And he has experience working in a lot of Latin American countries. And today he will be helping us really explore in depth more on this issue. Dr. Landrigan's research mainly focuses on toxic chemicals, uh, but he is continuing his work at the Lancet Commission on Pollution and Health, and he is now currently directing the Global Observatory on Pollution and Health at Boston College, and he is one of the main founders of the public health and global good minor here at Boston College. So we're really thankful to have him and keep listening for what he has to say on more on this issue.
1: Hi, Professor Landrigan, thank you so much for being here with us. Um, We really appreciate your service to, you know, Latin America and also just public health. And we're really excited to, you know, start asking you some questions about the COVID-19 pandemic and its relation to how it will affect the Latinx community. Um, So quick presentations. I am Paula Sanchez. I am a senior for the Organization of Latin American Fair. I am the events coordinator
2: and hi, Professor Landry, and thank you for being here very much. I am Jose Rosario. I am also a part of the Organization of Latin American Affairs and I'm currently the sophomore representative.
3: And my, my thanks to both of you. I, I really appreciate uh, your inviting me to, to talk to you and to make this tape for your group.
2: I really appreciate it.
1: Okay, so we're gonna jump right into it now. And the first question we have is Clearly, the current pandemic has highlighted the presence of inequities in healthcare for communities of color, and this has left our communities susceptible to the kind of fear and suffering that we've witnessed over the past year. Uh, based on your expertise, what are some of the most prevalent inequities in healthcare, and how are they contributed to the rise of COVID 19 cases in Black and Latinx communities?
3: Yeah, well, I, I think the way to to frame this is to say that the covid-19 pandemic has has brought out into the open has made obvious some deep disparities some deep inequities that have been there for a long long time but now are out in the open uh, and visible visible to everyone and and uh, i think it's important that the pandemic has made these inequities visible because when people can see them then there's a better chance that more people will do Uh, something in the right direction to, to address these problems. So the, the disparities in health are are really just the, the tip of the iceberg. They're one obvious part of a whole series of inequities. It, it, I think most fundamentally it's differences in income and uh, accumulated um, financial resources within families. Uh, the, the huge difference between the white community and the minority community in the United States. Um, on top of that, we've got, uh, especially in the last four years, we've had very regressive tax policies in this country, which has meant that the the actual earning power, the spending power of of poor people in general and people in the minority communities in particular has stagnated and even gone down. The rich have gotten richer the poor have stayed in place or even gotten poor then on top of that just another layer is that um disproportionate access to health care um, unfortunately we do not have universal guaranteed health care access for every person in the united states the way so many other countries do uh, everybody can get some level of care if they're willing to wait long enough and put up with enough humiliation but we do, we don't have enough uh, quality care available to every member of the, of the population, and it's the black community, it's the Latinx communities, it's the other minority communities, it's the recent immigrants, who who suffer most from from this inequity. And it, it it's not just the way it feels when you're a patient there; it uh, it's also borne out in the statistics. White people live longer. Black people and Latinx people uh, have shorter lives. There's higher infant mortality among newborn infants. There's higher mat, uh, maternal mortality among women giving uh, giving childbirth in, in in those communities. So these these are these are are deep-seated inequities. There's also differences in the availability of food. Uh, for many years, I worked at Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York City, and I, which sits right at the border between the Upper East Side and East Harlem, El Barrio in New York City. So uh, we were able to see firsthand in our daily experience, the difference in the quality of food that was available in those two communities, just five or 10 blocks apart from each other. And one of the fundamental problems in the, uh, in the minority communities in cities like New York, Boston, and across the country is, is that in those communities, there's not a whole lot of healthy food available. much more fried chicken than fresh vegetables and there's also a lack a relative lack of safe places to walk and play for kids to run to exercise and all of those factors add up to increasing the burden of obesity and diabetes and heart disease and stroke and other and other chronic diseases in the community and what what happened when covid hit was that the COVID the acute epidemic of COVID-19 collided with this chronic slow-moving epidemic of non-communicable disease in the minority communities and the result has been the public health disaster that we've that we've seen uh in the past in the past 16 months
1: thank you so much um you actually answered our second question which was in regards to what are the social and economic factors that exacerbated the COVID-19 in the uh, Latinx and community. Um, so now I think we're just going to move on to the next question. Um, question number three, was it?
2: Yes. Um, question number three is, what are some of the cultural barriers that limit access to care for these communities? For example, how may have language barriers played a role in the dissemination of information and in the distribution of the disease?
3: Mm. So I, I think language is always a barrier. Um, I I think the health departments and the public authorities do a pretty good job of making most public health announcements bilingual in English and Spanish, and to some extent in French and Haitian Creole. I think where where language really becomes a barrier is beyond those communities, the smaller communities of more recent immigrants. When I worked in New York City, a lot of our work was in the borough of Queens, New York. And in the borough of Queens, there were 160 languages spoken. It's mind boggling. Um, the six big ones were English, Spanish, Chinese, um, Hebrew, Russian, and and one more. But beyond those, there were more than 100 other languages. and. Uh, for those communities for for immigrants in general but for those immigrants who belong to small linguistic groups in particular language is a big barrier another related barrier is uh, the barriers uh, uh, that were in the affordable care act that, that were placed that make it very difficult or impossible for undocumented immigrants to access quality medical care and that is a huge barrier And it's, you know, it was done for political reasons, which, and and I believe it's it's morally wrong, but beyond that, it's stupid. Because if you leave a segment of the population unvaccinated, uncovered, without access to public health, then that, from a public health point of view, that is gonna be a a segment of the population where disease festers. And, of course, people don't just stay within their community 24-7. They go out and they mingle with other people, and consequently, they carry they carry the disease with them. So I, I think those are those are two of the big ones.
1: Thank you so much for touching on that. Especially, um, you know, within the Latinx community, immigration is such a huge topic and you know issue that is at our community. So thank you so much for really highlighting that. Um, the next question we wanted to ask was: Given the fact that Latinx and Black communities are at higher risk of developing Lots of diseases such as diabetes and high blood pressure, among others. How do you think that the additional burden of COVID-19 will impact or shape the physical and mental well-being of these communities?
3: Yes, well, firstly, the, there are several factors that make the Latin, Latinx communities more vulnerable. You've mentioned some of them, the, the high prevalence of overweight, obesity, chronic diseases, heart disease, lung disease, all of that increases the severity of disease in the population and it increases the risk of death if they get COVID. Um, Another set of factors is has to do with environmental injustice. Uh, Black and Latinx communities are disproportionately exposed to air pollution and other environmental hazards. We now have some quite good data uh, have been published in the medical literature showing that people who are heavily exposed to air pollution have a higher risk of bad outcomes, fatal outcomes from COVID than people who are not exposed to high levels of air pollution. And and so all of those factors come together and they have resulted in a higher rate of severe disease and a higher rate of mortality death among the black and Latinx communities than among the white community. So how does that play out in terms of mental health? Well, at the most basic human level, it means, grief and sadness. It means that just so many families have lost a loved one or have had a loved one spend weeks in the hospital before they finally came home. Uh, The rate of of serious medical outcomes is much higher in the minority communities than in the white community. And, And when you have widespread sadness in a community, some people, you know, will bounce back from it, of course. But when that many people are afflicted with grief and sadness, some of them are just going to are going to suffer mental health consequences. Uh, they're going to get depressed. Um, they'll they'll get despondent. They'll have trouble meeting the challenges of life. It's um, and and, and um, when you put that on top of the physical barriers that already confront them, it's it's, it's, uh, it's all it, it's not good. So what what it means in in practical terms is that people who are providing care. In the Black and Latinx communities have to be mindful, have to be conscious of the fact that there's going to be a lot of mental distress in the communities in consequence of COVID and be prepared to deal with it.
2: Thank you very much for expanding on that. We definitely believe mental and physical health with everything that's going on in the COVID is being greatly affected and mostly in this disproportionate communities. And thank you for expanding and alluding to our next question which is, is that a large portion of Latinx individuals in the USA send back remittances to their home countries. And in countries like El Salvador, remittances actually constitute 23% of the country's GDP. Considering what we've talked about so far with Black and Latinx communities being disproportionately impacted by COVID-19, from a public health perspective, what will be the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on the rest of Latin America as we come out of the pandemic?
3: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think the, the issue of remittances is huge, and I, I haven't tracked the statistics, but I, I strongly suspect that the amount of remittances has decreased during the pandemic because people have been sick, people have not been able to work, some people have even died. And so for all those reasons, the number of dollars flowing south has, has decreased. Um, that's going to make it difficult for people back at home who rely on that money to put bread on the table. Um, and it may become one more factor that impels people, especially in El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, to to head north.
1: Oh, it sounds like the impact
0: of this in the years to come is gonna be huge. And we will definitely see that you know in the years to come. And it's gonna be an issue that we're all gonna become aware of in the next couple of years. Um, so thank you so much for on, on that. Um, the next question we have for you is looking forward, as students who um, have taken several biology classes at Boston College, um, the idea of our generation facing multiple pandemics throughout our lifetime has been thrown around several times as if it will become a sort of new reality for our generation. Um, and specifically for us, when, whenever I've heard this, I always think about the Latinas community and how, like, we've been so disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 and how much we've lost. And so we wanted to ask you, um, what can we do to better prepare our communities in case of future pandemics? Is there anything that we can do to prepare ourselves?
3: Yeah, well, I think I think to answer that question, you have to think on a couple of levels. There's, there certainly are things that communities can do to prepare themselves but there are also things that entire societies have to do to prepare societies for future pandemics. So taking those two pieces one at a time, in in communities, um, anything that people within the community can do to build social cohesion, to strengthen families, to help the people who are here on their own, who are not part of a family, either because people have died or because they've immigrated by themselves, Anything that can be done to integrate people, to create social networks, through churches, through schools, through community clubs, whatever works, is is all to the good. It's it's all to the good. And the other thing is that um, people in communities need to work politically. Um, that's the way immigrants have always gained power in the United States. is is to is to work politically to identify the candidates who are going to help them to lift the community up and then and then to get out and, and vote for those people. Um, at the broader society, there's a couple of big things that have to be done. And actually, I'm uh, encouraged, at least in part, that President Biden is taking some important steps in the right direction. One huge thing that he's starting to do, and I hope he's able to follow through on it uh, in the face of this very difficult Congress, is to reduce the enormous economic inequality that exists between the richest and the poorest people in the United States. The richest people over the past 40 years, since Ronald Reagan came into the White House in 1981, have more than doubled their wealth, and the rest of the population at best has held steady, and many have have lost out. And when you have that much of a divide between the rich and the poor in a society, the what it means is that you have a whole portion of the population in whom the country has underinvested in terms of schools, in terms of infrastructure, in terms of hospitals, in terms of healthcare, and we've got to we've got to do a better job of leveling the playing field, otherwise. I feel, I fear, frankly, that the democracy will not survive, that we'll descend into some kind of an oligarchy. Uh, The second thing we have to do is more technical, and that is we have to rebuild public health systems at every level, at the city level, at the state level, and nationally. We have underinvested in those systems for far too long, especially the local and the state public health systems, which have lost anywhere from 25 to 50% of their budget in the last 40 years local health departments used to do way far more for their local communities than they do today and they were always um, a source of resilience and stability within societies and a lot of that's been lost and the only way it's going to be rebuilt is to put the money in to public health systems uh, to hire back uh, doctors, nurses, health educators, the other people who make who make health departments run. Well I'm very glad that we started the program in global public health and the common good at Boston College just three years ago. we We started it before Covid, but our first graduates are coming out now just at a time when when the need has never been greater. So hopefully some of the people that are will be graduating in May from our program will become, the public health leaders of the future, and they will help to fill some of these gaps that have opened up over the past three or four decades.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. That was a very thoughtful answer. Um, and just as a follow-up to this question, um, you did mention a lot about the public health perspective, and that we need to really prioritize public health in this country. Um, and one of the questions we want to ask is, what, um, what? Public policy should our government really prioritize
3: moving forward? I think the most important long-term policy to elevate the health and the economic well-being of all minorities in the United States is to really seriously invest in public education from from pre-K up. That's that's the way you build future leaders. Is just start early, you educate people. You teach them how to think, they become independent, they become like you guys, they they go on to college, and they become large in number.
2: Thank you very much for elaborating on that point, which we think is one of the most important, and getting this pandemic out of the way as soon as possible. And speaking about, about health, a primary way in which information is spread in the Latinx communities is through social media, Facebook, WhatsApp, and other platforms. And as you can imagine, a lot of false information can spread easily. And this has left many of our family members scared about the new COVID vaccines. One misconception I've heard often is that these vaccines have been rolled out to lower the world population, among other things. And in social media, there are every type of misconceptions. What would you say about these misconceptions? And why do you think such misconceptions run in these rampant communities? And what could we do about it?
3: yeah well, I think there are many reasons why rumors spread. Uh, one of the I think one of the one thing is that there are people, individuals who profit from misinformation. They start websites, they pump out whatever bizarre theories occur to them, um and then they ask people for money to to keep the to keep the machine going. And there are lots of people. Some have great big operations like Alex Jones and Infowars. A lot more are small and local. But people have figured out that they can they can profit from telling lies. So one thing that communities can do is is to call these kind of people out, and 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 and, and look at the motive. I think on a more positive note, um, I think that one of the Really important things we've learned in the um, 2020 election is the importance of role modeling. I'm I'm thinking, for example, of LeBron James. So if somebody from within the Black community, somebody from within the Latinx community, somebody who's well known um, from sports, from the movies, from music, from whatever, as a civic figure, if a few of those people go, get on camera, and let let it let let the public see them receiving the vaccine in their arm. It'll it'll dispel a lot of those rumors. It won't it won't get rid of them all, but it will help.
2: Thank you very much. And obviously, as a fellow to this, uh, there has been a rising wave of people, including Latinos, that are against getting the vaccine. Uh, many many people speak about the fact that your DNA could be affected. Many speak about what your future might hold if you get the vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, with Latinos being vaccinated for COVID at far lower rates than white Americans, what is a proper way to address this issue and make sure they make an informed decision on their vaccination status? Even if they still opt to not get vaccinated, the important thing is that everybody makes an educated decision. What would you say to all these people that are seeking that decision?
3: So you've got to approach this on, on a couple of levels because some of the objection to vaccine is rational thought and some of it is emotion. And so you have to appreciate that. And if you simply go in with a series of six talking points to educate people about why they're gonna get the vaccine and you don't address their fears and their deeper concerns, you won't persuade very many people to get vaccines. And and so part of it is to ask people to tell you what what it is, Be, be a good listener, ask them to tell you what, what's on their mind, and then and then try to come up with reasonable answers to that as best you can. Uh, again, I'll circle back to the point I made a moment ago that role models, examples, prominent figures who courageously step up and get the vaccine and announce to the public that they have received the vaccine can go a long way towards breaking down those barriers.
0: Thank you so much for um addressing that. And I really think that the point that you made about addressing people's fear makes a lot of sense because I mean in these times fears just increasing um with everything that's there's happening. a
3: lot of fear out there. Absolutely.
1: Yeah,
0: exactly. And like you said, we have to be empathetic of that fear and understand that it's not easy for a lot of communities that don't understand yeah. or don't really have access to inf- like information enough to really, you know, alleviate those fears. Um yeah. And so now moving, you know, continuing with this fear thought, um, you know, among Black and Latinx communities, and especially within the Black communities, there is a mistrust of government-led medical efforts. Um, And I mean, there has been history, like, for example, with the Tuskegee trials. Um, So what do you think is necessary to rebuild this trust between government-led efforts and these disadvantaged communities?
3: Yeah. Um, Takes time to rebuild trust. Tuskegee was a horrible, horrible event. Um, and, um, and the memory lingers. It's almost 50 years, you know, mm-hmm. since that came to light. I think it was 72, somewhere around there, uh, although it had gone back to the 1940s. Um, and it it takes years and even generations to rebuild trust. But I, I think the way that you rebuild trust, it's no different from building trust among individuals, is to walk the walk, to to, to be there. I remember Woody Allen said that 80% of life is showing up and and just being in the right place at the right time and, and doing the right thing, not making a big fuss of it, just, just being there.
2: Thank you very much for elaborating on that um, and speaking about trust and speaking about transparency and everything we need in this process. Could you elaborate? on the trials companies have gone through to develop the vaccines, we believe it is very important that people who are deciding if they wish to get vaccinated know the process. And if you know where something comes from, you you sort of trust it even more. You sort of make that educated guess, educated decision even Mm -hmm. better. Um, So it's important to know the process of vaccine development and what makes it trustworthy or not so much for other people.
3: Yeah, so the way those vaccine trials are done is that they uh, it's all done with very transparent informed consent. Everybody who participates in a vaccine trial is given complete information about the trial before they sign up and they have to sign a piece of paper that, that, that uh, in which they agree to participate. And, and, and these vaccine trials are big. They involve many thousands of people. And basically what you do is you get two groups of people who are as closely similar as possible in their age, their gender distribution, their ethnicity, their race. And half of them get the vaccine, whichever vaccine it is. And the other half get a dose of saline, salt water. And, and then you just watch them. You, you check in with them every week or 10 days over the next two or three or four months. And see what percentage of them get COVID, and they do frequent nasal swabbing to um, to measure COVID infection. And that's that's basically it. And and what what those trials have found is that the incidence of COVID infection is like 95 percent higher in the people that got the saline compared to the people that get the vaccine. And that's the way they compute. That's the way they come up with these numbers that you hear all the time that the vaccine pr- protects 94% or 92% or 79% of the vaccinated people. It's as simple as that. It's not fancy statistics or anything very mysterious.
2: Thank you very much. Definitely, even though it might not sign out as something serious, um, it's something I think a lot of people bridge upon or read upon and with, with such a new virus coming in, a lot of uncertainty roots with that. And anything that they found uncertain about this process, maybe the trials, maybe the vaccine, how it's made, where it comes from, what ingredients it has, anything can cause a doubt for, for getting something in your body. So this is something very important to address. Following up yeah. on that, since there is a higher incidence of COVID affecting minorities and lower income communities, what are some misconceptions that have been seen regarding testing? Um, I think there should be a clear understanding of what a PCR, of what antibodies are, of what a rapid test measures and accounts for. I think um, most people say, "I got this type of testing," and if you don't have COVID in the moment, you can get you can't get that type of testing. or for example, in contrast, to the rap the rapid test. What could you elaborate on that?
3: Okay, so the nasal swab is measuring the presence of, excuse me, the presence of COVID-19 virus in your nose. When you and your fellow students go down to the Margot Connell Center and the nurses uh, swab out your nose with that piece of cotton, they dip the swab into a test tube that contains um, a little solution and they take it back to the lab. And in the laboratory, they can tell within a couple of hours whether or not this virus in your nose the laboratory test is called PCR and and that's based on identifying the RNA which is in the virus and it's either present or it's not so it's a it's a, it's a binary yes no answer and it it what it what it, if you have a positive that means you have COVID infection today it doesn't speak to last week it doesn't speak to next week but it says you have COVID in your body today If you test negative today, you can pick it up tomorrow. It's just a snapshot of this moment here and now. By contrast, the antibody test is measuring previous COVID infection. The way that works is that when a person gets COVID, first they have the virus in their body, in their nose. That virus stimulates an immune response in the person's immune system. And one component of that immune response is the production of antibodies which uh, get into the bloodstream and circulate in the bloodstream. And so when they do the antibody test, they're basically taking a few cc's of blood, sending it off to the lab, and they're measuring to see if you have antibodies in your bloodstream, which indicates, it can indicate two possible things. Either you had COVID infection in the past, natural infection, or you received the COVID vaccine. Either way, you can get antibodies. And one of the big unanswered scientific questions here is how long is that protection going to last? We know it lasts a few months. We know that already because people that have been vaccinated are still protected a few months out. But we don't have 12 months or 24 months or 3 years or 5 years follow-up. And only time will only time will answer that question first.
0: Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Even I didn't know some of those things. So I'm actually really glad that we were able to ask you that question.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and I mean, obviously we have a million questions that we can really discuss and go into detail um, because there's so many issues that have really you know risen to the top of the surface, um, especially with regards to our community um but i did want to go back and ask a question about education because you did emphasize that you know educating the youth is really an important aspect of bridging these disparities present um so one of the questions that i had was according to salud america um according to salud america it's The website has stated that Latinx students are falling behind on their schooling amid COVID-19 distant learning. Uh, though Zoom burnout is something that we've all experienced, um, you know, college students, young kids. Um, and social distant learning has been tough, you know, for all students across the country. How do you think this kind of burnout will impact the Latinx community in the years to come? And how can we address that?
3: Yeah, well, I think I think a lot of young children's education has suffered during the COVID-19 Pandemic. And I, there's no question that that Black and Latinx communities have suffered disproportionately um, for all kinds of reasons. Um, not as many families have a good computer. Not as many families have a stable internet connection. Um, families that are in economically precarious circumstances move a lot. And so they may start in one school district, then they'll be in another one, then they'll be in another one. And you, families can work around that, if the kids are able physically to go to school um but if the kids are are at home and they've got a poor or non-existent internet connection then clearly they're not they're not going to learn and i i think for a lot of kids they've they uh especially in the minority communities in this country they have lost at least a full year of education and it's going to take a lot of work to recover that i think i I don't think white majority kids are immune to this either, but I, I think that the suffering has been disproportionately heavy in the minority communities.
0: Yeah. And you know, just lastly as a closing statement, what would you advise us, you know, college students or the youth, especially Latinx youth, what would you advise us to do moving forward to really address these disparities or to really help our community move forward after the pandemic?
3: Well, I'll, I'll begin my answer to that last question by saying that I salute you for the, the work you're doing. I mean, you've obviously, the, this long list of very careful questions that you sent me. I told Jose it would probably take me about four hours to truly work through them. I'm surprised we got through it in an hour. Um, uh, but the mere fact that you guys are working that hard, expanding that intellectual energy, uh, thinking about these things, to use the Jesuit word, discerning upon these issues, um, it, it speaks very well for who you are, and and and, and it says to me that you guys are going to be future leaders in in your communities, um, whatever particular path you choose to pursue in your lives. And um, the the altruism, the intellect, the generosity that you're bringing is is all very good. And what I think your responsibility as young adults who are moving into that community, who are highly educated, who obviously enjoy uh, some privileges and some advantages that some of your peers have not enjoyed is 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 to do what the Jesuits told me to do when I graduated from Boston College um, more than 50 years ago, is go back to my community, educate people, bring them up, use your talents, whether it's in science or education or politics or writing or whatever it might be, but use your talents to... Um, Benefit the people around you, with a particular focus on your own community. You know, to give you a little history, that's why Boston College was started. You probably know some of this. You heard it when you first got here. But my family, as you probably guess from looking at my face, came from Ireland. And, <laughs> and when the when the Irish arrived in Boston, they were uh, disrespected immigrants. Uh, my grandfather used to tell me stories about looking for a job in Boston and seeing signs in the window that said nina which didn't mean a little girl baby it 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 meant no irish need apply and um and and they were systematically shut out and one of the things that the community did was speak to the jesuits and ask the jesuits to start a college which became boston college and it was originally located uh in the south end of boston if you know where the cathedral is down there in the south end it what well, it started a few blocks from here, and in fact, there's, there's a parish church down there called the Church of the Immaculate Conception, which is still there and it's still a Jesuit parish, actually. And then around the year 1900, they moved out here to Newton, and uh, bought this land. Somebody gave them the land, and bought some more. And and and, and it, so part of it comes from within the community, people in the community just doing what you guys are doing, and part of it from the society, the broader society doing the right thing. Yeah, for example. Um, when Franklin Eleanor Roosevelt came into the White House in 1932 and started the New Deal and broadly extended uh, education benefits and social security benefits and a whole series of infrastructure benefits that put jobs into the Irish American and the Italian American communities. Um, and, and into the black community, especially the blacks who came north to, the, um, to Michigan and, and Indiana and those states from the, from the former slave states. And it's, you, you have to look at these things in the broad sweep of history. But at the end of the day, it all comes back to individuals who care. It's all about that.
0: Definitely. I completely agree with that. And thank you so much for including a little bit of, you know, Boston College history in that because, of course, as BC students, we can only motivate, you know, the people around us. And then hopefully that can make a bigger change in society as well. Um, so thank you so much for that. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us and for really you know focusing on the disadvantages that our communities are facing and how we can move on to address these, you know disparities. Um, so again, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with
1: it was us. A
3: pleasure. it was a, it was a pleasure to talk with with the both of you, and i I wish you well. If you want to come back and talk at someday, you know where I am, i'm I'd be very happy to do that.,
1: yeah, of
0: course. Thank you so, so much. Once again, thank you everybody for tuning into this podcast and allowing us to explore the issue at hand and how it relates to Latin American community. Uh, We'd really like to emphasize one of the points that Dr. Lindrigan made, and that is that fear is very much a real consequence of everything that we've been hearing and seeing this past year during the COVID-19 pandemic. And because of that, we really encourage you all to serve your communities, every community that has been impacted by this pandemic with patience, kindness, and understanding. And, you know, the organization of Iron Affairs would like to take the time to really let you know that for everybody that has been affected by COVID-19, for anybody that's lost someone to their family and for everybody that's just been negatively hurted by this pandemic, we are keeping you all in our hearts and thoughts and We really encourage you to just spread as much of the information that has been available to those who may not have access to it and we're hoping that you will share everything that we've posted on our social media and on our Facebook page with regards to the COVID-19 vaccine and our campaign awareness and we've really tried to make it to make it as accessible as possible in both English and Spanish and the transcript of this audio will also be released in Spanish so please share with anybody you feel would benefit from learning of what we've discussed today. Thank you so much, and we're hoping everybody stays healthy and safe. Thank you.